this morning and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Let's just read uh, verse 1. It says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout all, uh, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every, every house and having men and women committing them to prison. Let's just open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together in this place and to spend time uh, together as believers and, and around your word. Lord, I pray as we continue our study this morning in the book of Acts, that you give me wisdom and guidance as I preach. That, Lord, it would be your words, it would be your thoughts. Lord, you'd speak to each of our hearts this morning. May you give us understanding of your word. May receive a blessing from your word this morning, and leave knowing that we've been in your presence. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Christ had said unto his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know, we refer to that passage and the parallel passage in Matthew as being the Great Commission. Yes, you know, where Christ... Uh, giving his final instructions to his disciples as to what they are to do once he's gone back to glory. Instructing his disciples that it was their mission to take the gospel message unto all the world. Not to just keep it to themselves, but they were to spread forth and they were to give it unto all men. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we were reminded of this great commission. Just turn back there, Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> In verse 8 we read, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So right back at the beginning of this book, Luke had refreshed our minds concerning this great commission from the Lord, that Christ's followers were told to be witnesses in Jerusalem first, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so God's desire for the church was very clear. God's desire was that it would spread forth. It wouldn't just stay with the Jews, that it would be spread unto all nations, all people. You know, up until this point in the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel going forth with great power in the city of Jerusalem. That's where we've seen the the labor. That's where we've seen the work so far. It's been in the city of Jerusalem. You know, we haven't seen really the gospel spread forth from that place. Until this point, the spread of the gospel, if you like, has been very slow uh, in leaving Jerusalem. But now with the death of Stephen, this all changes. We looked at Stephen's death last Sunday. We looked at his stoning. And it's following his stoning that now the gospel spreads forth with great pace. You know, God uses the uh, the fires of persecution to motivate his people. To motivate his people to take the gospel now unto all nations around them to fulfill the Great Commission. You know, the wonderful truth is that Stephen's death was not in vain. Stephen's death was not in vain. You know, at first glance, reading through the book of Acts, you know, it could seem that his death was meaningless, couldn't it? 
You know, here you have this young, vibrant man, and he's enthusiastic for the Lord. He's preaching. He's going around all the synagogues telling them about Christ. And then his life is cut short very quickly. You know, we don't have any record of anyone getting saved. We don't have any record of any great effect happening under his ministry. You know, in the eyes of men, his ministry seems to be a failure, doesn't it? But you know, God used his death to be the beginning of something great. You know, the persecution that results against the church following his death leads to the spread of the gospel unto all the world. In verse 1 we read, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout all Sorry, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Where it says, and at that time, there was a great persecution. At that great time there, that's talking about immediately, basically soon after. Soon after Stephen's death, this persecution comes against the church. And the gospel spreads forth under all the world. And so Stephen's death was not in vain. It was the beginning of it spreading forth. And chapter 8 now outlines for us this spread of the truth. And the events recorded for us here center around four different men. This morning I want us to look at the first two of these men and then, Lord willing, in the coming weeks we'll look at the other two. And so first of this morning we see Saul the persecutor. Saul the persecutor. Just read with me again verse 1 to 3. It says, And Saul was consented unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they're all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Now the first character that we find here in chapter 8, in the narrative of chapter 8, is none other than Saul. You know, we first saw Saul back in chapter 7 and verse 58. And, you know, if you were reading through the book of Acts for the first time, when you read about Saul there, you would have no reason to assume that he would be anything more than just a passing mention, just a passing name. You know, verse 58 there of chapter 7, it says, And cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now, he seems to just be a passing thought, doesn't he? Just this young man who happened to be there and... He's just mentioned quickly as we pass on in the narrative of the book of Acts. But now with chapter 8, we begin to see that there is much more to Saul. Much more to him than just a young man who watched on as Stephen was stoned to death. Much more than just a man where you know, they laid their clothes at his feet. You know, we quickly learn that Saul was pleased with Stephen's death. And we learn that he was the main instigator of the persecution that then follows against the church. The start of verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. The word consenting there has the idea of hearty approval. It's hearty approval. In other words, he took great pleasure in the death of Stephen. You know, some people are reluctant persecutors. You know, when you look down through the ages, there's, there's men who are just following the orders of the hierarchy, aren't they? You know, they're not really pleased about it, but they're doing as they're instructed, as they're told. Saul was not one of them. Saul was not just doing as he was told. Saul loved it. Saul wanted to persecute the church. He wanted to persecute Stephen. He took pleasure 
in the death of Stephen. And he took pleasure then in attacking the church following this. Yeah, this is how much Saul was against the church and against Christ. This is how much he hated the church and everything it stood for. Hated believers. He persecuted it with a great passion and great zeal. You know, when we consider what else we know about Saul from the Word of God, we begin to understand why he was so zealous against the church. In Acts 23 and verse 6, we're told that he was the son of a Pharisee. Okay, so his dad's a Pharisee and he grows up in the household of a Pharisee. In Acts 22 verse 3, it tells us that he was then educated in Jerusalem by Gamaliel. Okay, it says he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, this great leader, this great teacher in Jerusalem at the time. And after being taught by Gamaliel, he himself becomes a Pharisee, a staunch Pharisee like his father before him. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, Paul himself describes himself as being a Pharisee. And he says that his life was blameless according to the Lord. Just turn there, Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, in verse 5, we'll start back in verse 4. It says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And so Saul says of himself, he says, I was a, you know, I was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and I kept the law. He was blameless according to the law. That was his zeal. His passion was keeping the law, obeying everything about the law and father's traditions as well before him. You know, such was his zeal for the law and his zeal for the traditions of his forefathers that Saul was well on his way to becoming one of the, the leaders in Jerusalem of the Jewish faith. Go to Galatians 1 with me. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Again, Paul describing himself, and he talks about the fact that he was you know, more zealous than his equals. Others his own age, he was... You know, the point is that Saul was the cream of the crop. He was the cream of the crop. He was the up-and-coming young Pharisee, the one who was full of all the zeal, the one full of passion, the one who kept the law, was, was staunch concerning the traditions of the fathers. He was the example. He was the poster boy, if you like, of the Pharisees. You know, he was going to be one of the future leaders. They had great hopes for Saul. You know, it's this zeal, this passion for the law, this zeal and passion for um, his, the beliefs of his forefathers, his traditions, it's this zeal that then is displayed most vividly in his persecution of the church and indeed of Christ. You see, as far as Saul was concerned, the Christians were a threat to the law. The Christians were a threat to the traditions that he held dear. These traditions that he had such a passion about. The Christians were a threat to it. And Saul really thought that by persecuting the Jews, he was doing God's will. 
Okay? He really believed. He was obeying the Lord. He really believed he was serving God. And so he sets about it with great zeal, great passion, great intensity as he thinks he's serving God. Back in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 declares to us that, as I said, soon after Stephen's death, this persecution comes against the church. And the primary instigator of this persecution is Saul. That's according to verse 3. It says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and Hailing men and women committed them to prison. So we have this great persecution and Saul is at the forefront of it all. He's at the head of it all, leading it up, leading the charge against the church. And we're told here that he made havoc of the church. And the word used here, this word havoc, describes an animal, a wild animal ravaging its prey. That's what this word means, a wild animal ravaging its prey. You see, the point is that Saul raged against the church like a wild beast. He raged against the church like a wild beast full of passion and zeal against Christ and against his followers, hunting and seeking his prey wherever they could be found. Now, in verse 3, we're told that he would enter into every house and drag out men and women who were Christians. It's that word hailing there. It's the idea of dragging them out. He would go from door to door, basically searching for Christians. And any he found, he dragged them off and threw them into prison. You know, Saul didn't care if they were men or women, young or old. Saul carried them all off to prison. He was indiscriminative here, wasn't he, in his persecution of the church. You know, from other passages in the Word of God, we know that his persecution went beyond just locking up the Christians in prison. In Acts 22, Paul himself admits that he persecuted the Christians unto death. Just turn there, Acts 22. In Acts 22 and verse 3, it says, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarshish, the city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous towards God, as ye are all, sorry, as you all are this day, and I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. It says here that he persecuted this way unto the death. He would go and arrest them, throw them into prison, and his end goal was he wanted them put to death. And he did, he saw some put to death. You see, his desire was that all Christians would suffer the same fate as Stephen. That's, that's his passion. This is Saul here. This is his zeal. And as we said, when he's watching on, consenting under the death, he's looking on with uh, satisfaction. You know, he wanted this to happen. He was enjoying it. This is what he wanted. And he sets about with that same zeal now persecuting the whole church. And he wants them to suffer the same fate as Stephen. He wants them put to death. In Acts 26, we're told that he would throw them in prison and beat them, seeking to get them to renounce their faith in Christ. Turn over there, Acts 26, verse 9. It says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, 
And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even under strange cities. I'm told that he would imprison them, he would beat them. It says in Acts chapter 22, I think it's verse 19, that he beat them while they're in prison. And he's seeking to get them to what? Blaspheme Christ. To renounce Christ, renounce their faith, reject their faith, or be executed. That's what he's doing here. If they didn't renounce their faith, he would seek for them then to be put to death. Yeah, Paul himself there in verse 11 of Acts 26 describes himself as being exceedingly mad against them. Yeah, he was like a madman, enraged with their passion and zeal against Christ and his followers. You know, I've gone through all this to show his persecution to make us realize just how terrible Saul's persecution was of the church. I think at times we sort of breeze over it, don't we? We knew he persecuted the church, but his persecution was severe. The things he did were horrible, disgraceful things that he did against the church, against Christ and his followers. You know, Saul hated Christ and anyone who named the Lord's name. You know, as I was reading through what Saul was doing, you know, we're reminded straight away of all the persecutions down through history, aren't we? Because it's exactly the same pattern, isn't it? They would throw them into prison, beat them, seeking to get them to renounce their faith or be executed. You know, Saul here is setting the pattern for persecution of the church right throughout history. He's laying the pattern. This is the pattern that they've all followed. This is the pattern they've all... Um, executed as they have persecuted believers down through the ages. It begins with Saul, this man who has a passion for the law, a passion for the traditions of his fathers. He thinks he's serving God. You know, his zeal and passion for the law and traditions of men controlled his life and almost destroyed his life. You know, he thought he was serving God, but in reality he was fighting against God. You know, the awesome reality is that even a man like Saul can find forgiveness at the cross. And as I was studying through and reading about everything he got up to, everything he did against the church, isn't it just amazing how great our God is? That God would forgive such a sinner like Saul. You know, someone who's committed such atrocities against God's believers. In chapter 9, as we, when we get there, we'll read of Saul meeting the Lord on the road to Damascus. And the Lord shows him great mercy, doesn't he? The Lord shows him great mercy and forgives him and saves this, this man, Saul, this one who's killed believers, persecuted the church. Now really, Saul's persecution highlights for you and I the grace and the mercy of our God, doesn't it? It ought to make us marvel at just how great our God really is. How gracious and merciful He is. You see, no sin is too great for God to forgive. No sin. The only sin that sends man to hell is the rejection of Christ. No sin is too great for God. But you know, not only that, God then takes this one who murdered believers, this one who threw him into prison and beat confessions out of them, and God then uses him mightily to his glory. And we find in the book of, in the New Testament here, that most of it's written by who? The Apostle Paul. 
God takes and converts this man, changes this man into one of the great forefathers of the faith. You know, if we can't marvel this morning at the, the wonderful grace and mercy of our God, something's wrong, isn't it? It's incredible. It really is incredible that God could take someone like Saul, turn him into Paul with his great passion and zeal for Christ. You know, again, that ought to make us realize that it doesn't matter what our past is, God can use us to his glory. No matter what our past failures are, no matter what our past mistakes are, God can still use us to his glory. And even mistakes in the future, God can overcome and use us to his glory. Now, that ought to encourage us that no matter what we've done, no matter our failures, God can use us to his glory. Now, all our sins are dealt with at the cross, and by God's grace, we can now live for him. Now, it also ought to remind us that everybody needs Christ. Now, all men need the Lord, even men like Saul. They need the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness of Christ. The second man we come across here in the book of Acts is the man Philip. Acts chapter 8, we find Philip, the faithful preacher. In verse 4 we read, Therefore they were scattered abroad, went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that, were, and, sorry, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now verse 4 now declares unto us that because of Saul's persecution against the church, the believers are scattered abroad, and they take with them the message. It says, therefore they were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. The believers are scattered. They take the word with them, preaching the gospel as they go. You know, here we now begin to see the fruit of Stephen's ministry, don't we? We begin to see the fruit of what, what happened with Stephen now is outworked as all these believers spread forth with the gospel. Now, many leave Jerusalem. And one of those that leaves is this man, Philip. In verse 5, we're told that Philip goes to the city of Samaria. It says, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and preach Christ unto them. So we have this man, Philip, and he heads down to Samaria to preach unto them. We must understand this man, Philip, here is not Philip the apostle. Okay, This is Philip, one of the seven deacons mentioned in chapter 6, verse 5. Just turn back there. <clears throat> Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip. Okay, that Philip there is the one we're reading about here in Acts chapter 8. Philip, like Stephen, was chosen to be one of the seven deacons there in the church at Jerusalem. He was chosen to take care of the administration of the church. But here we find that like Stephen, his ministry has grown. You know, he's faithful as a deacon, and now the Lord entrusts him with more. His ministry grows as he goes forth now as an effective evangelist for the Lord. In Acts 21, verse 8, he is actually called Philip the Evangelist. Just turn there. Acts 21, verse 8. It says, In the next day, 
we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Sisera. And, uh, sorry, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which is one of the seven, and abode with him. And so he's given this title, Philip the Evangelist. This is what he became known for, his ministry of evangelizing the lost, taking the gospel message. And so God here directs Philip down to Samaria to preach unto them, to evangelize the lost. You know, the Samaritans, of course, were essentially a half-breed people. They were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. You know, the Samaritan nation came about when the Assyrians captured the ten northern tribes and carried them away, okay, in 723 BC or thereabouts. You know, when they were defeated, when the northern tribes were defeated, many of them were carried away and then they were replaced with others, okay? They were exported out of their lands and settled in new lands and the Assyrians imported new people. And these imported people then intermarried with the Jews that were left behind and became a mixed race, the Samaritan race. And by the time of Christ, the Samaritans now had their own temple. They had their own priesthood. They were looking for the Messiah just like the Jews. But the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. They didn't get along at all. Go to John chapter 4 with me. Just quickly, John 4. Verse 9, it says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now we have Christ, and he meets the woman at the well there, and he's asked her for a drink. And she says, you know, she's shocked that he's talking to her. Because the Jews don't talk to the Samaritans. The Jews don't have any dealings with the Samaritans. The Jews consider the Samaritans to be dogs, you know, worthless, useless. And normally they wouldn't talk to them. There was great animosity here between these two groups of people. You know, in Luke chapter 9, we see that James and John actually wanted to call down fire from heaven. Luke chapter 9 and verse 52. Luke 9 verse 52, it says, And sent messages before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Now, James and John here, they want to consume the Samaritans with fire from heaven. He thought that was the answer. That's the solution. Let's just burn them up. You see, this is the attitude of the Jews to the Samaritans. They don't like them at all. There's great animosity here between these two groups of people. And this is where Philip now goes to preach the gospel. This is where Philip is sent by the Lord. The point is, this is not an easy place for a Jew to go. Okay? As much as the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans hated him too. It's not an easy place for him now to go and preach the truth. It would have been easy because of the way they felt towards him, but also, you've got to remember, Philip is a Jew. And so he has grown up with this prejudice towards the Samaritans. And so he has to put aside that, doesn't he? He has to put aside his prejudice. He has to put aside his, his feelings he had towards them. And he has to love them. And he has to give them the gospel. 
Now, the reality is, as we look at this story, we don't see any prejudice from Philip, do we? We don't see any prejudice. He goes to Samaria and he just goes to preach the truth in love. In love, he obeys the leading of the Lord and he goes to evangelize Samaria. Now, we read here in verse 5, it says that he preached Christ unto them. He preached Christ. We can't overlook that, can we? See, that's an important fact. This is the message he preached. You see, Philip didn't take under them a social gospel. He didn't go and preach morals under them. He didn't go and try and reform them or change them. No, he went to them and he preached Christ unto them. You see, that was the message they needed to hear. They needed to hear of Christ and his love for them. They needed to hear that the Messiah had come and died on the cross. They needed to hear of his redemptive work. And they needed to be saved. Only the message of Christ could save them. No other message could do anything for them. They needed the message of Christ. You know, the same is true for us today. We must faithfully preach Christ. You see, that is the only message that will save mankind. No other message will will save mankind. No other message will change them. It might produce outward change, but it hasn't changed their heart. It hasn't changed their eternal destiny. The only message that will have an effect is the message of Christ. That's the message we got to take under the world around us. In Romans 1 verse 16, we're told that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel message. Message of Christ crucified, risen, buried and risen again. It's that message that is the power of God unto salvation. That's the message that saves. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 1, it's declared that the preaching of the cross is God's method of salvation. Just go there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, we read, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, this is God's method of salvation, the preaching. Preaching of the cross, as it says in verse 18 there. No other message will save but the message of Christ, redemptive work on the cross. You know, preaching on social issues or political issues or preaching about moral issues, that doesn't save, does it? It's the message of the cross that you and I need to preach. You know, tickling the ears of people won't save them either. We've got to preach Christ. You know, that means that we must show men their guilt before Almighty God and show them that He and He alone can save them from their sin. And that's what Philip does here. Philip goes down and he preaches Christ unto them. He's faithful in preaching the truth. Under the Samaritans, we're told that they give heed with one accord to this message. Verse 6, it says, And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. He preaches Christ, and what happens? There's a great response. The Samaritans listen. The Samaritans believe. They accept the truth. 
You know, the Jews had rejected the message of the Messiah. But here the Samaritans, they accept the Messiah. They accept Christ and what he has done for them. They accept the truth. You know, accompanying Philip's message here were signs and wonders. It says at the end of verse 6, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying out with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. So accompanying, accompanying his message, he's also performing miracles, signs and wonders. We're told that his signs and wonders here consisted of casting out demons and also healing the sick. Now, as was the case in Christ's ministry and also in the ministry of his apostles, these miracles were simply given by God to confirm Philip's message unto the Samaritans. Now, the miracles didn't save them. The miracles simply confirmed the truth of the message that he was preaching. The miracles didn't convert them, didn't save them. No one has ever been saved by miracles. They simply were the evidence that he was speaking the truth. They got the people's attention, proved the message to be true, and then they accepted it by faith and were saved. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 declares unto us that these gifts have now ceased. Go there, 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, begin reading in verse 8. It says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. We're told here that these sign gifts, you know, they have vanished. They've, they've been done away with. They're no longer necessary. Why? Because when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part should be done away. The perfect there is the complete revelation of God to man. You see, these sign gifts are no longer necessary because you and I have in our possession now the complete revelation of God to man. We have the Word of God, the Bible. We don't need signs and wonders to confirm that we're speaking the truth because the Word of God confirms we're speaking the truth. You know, although we don't need these sign gifts to confirm the message, you know, our actions should still confirm the truth of the message we are preaching. You know, this is why our testimony is so important before men, isn't it? Because, you know, if we're preaching the message of Christ, and the change that he can produce in someone's life, but then there's no evidence of that change, well, then we are affecting the message, aren't we? We're hindering the message of Christ by our lives. You see, our lives are to reflect the truth of the gospel. Our actions should be evidence that the message we preach is the truth. It should be evidence that there is real power in the message of the cross. People ought to be able to see that power because of the change that's taking place in us. You know, in Matthew 5 and verse 16, Christ declared, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, our works, our lives confirm the message so that men glorify God, so that men then are brought to Him, so that men might in turn believe the truth and be saved. You know, that's what happens here with Philip. His actions were the miracles, were the signs and wonders. 
and the power of the Spirit. But his actions confirmed before these men that the message was the truth, and they believed. Now, verse 8 declares unto us that there was great joy in the city. The result of all this was great joy. The Samaritans came to the Lord and they experienced the joy of salvation. They experienced the joy of having their sins forgiven, having a home in heaven one day. And you know where this all began? It began with Stephen being stoned to death for his message of the cross. You know, persecution had led to the preaching of the gospel, which in turn produced great joy. Persecution preaching produced great joy. You know, truly Stephen's death was not in vain, was it? His death was not in vain. God used his death and the persecution that followed to bring the gospel unto the people of Samaria. And indeed, from there unto you and I. He used the death of Stephen. You know, this morning we've seen the first two men in this chapter. We've seen Saul, the persecutor, and Philip, the faithful preacher. And you, we can learn something from both of these men, can't we? You know, Saul reminds you and I of just how gracious and merciful our God really is. Reminds us that no one is beyond saving. No sin is too great for the blood of Christ to wash away. No one is beyond saving no matter who they are or what terrible things they've done. It also reminds us that God can use anyone to his glory if we surrender to him. No matter what our past failures are, God can use us to his glory. And the second man, Philip, you know, he reminds us of the necessity of faithfully preaching Christ and living Christ before those around us. Preaching and living Christ. You know, the message that men need to hear is the message of the cross. And like Philip, we must faithfully preach Christ without prejudice for all are in need of a Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Stephen, Lord, and we thank you for the great effect that comes from his death. Lord, truly the blood of the, the martyrs is the seed of the gospel, Lord, the seed of the church. And Lord, we just thank you so much, Lord, that from there we have this man Saul, and Lord, we see that, Lord, your grace and mercy upon him in his life. And Lord, we thank you for Philip as well and his faithful preaching. But Lord, may we follow that example, may we go forth without prejudice to preach the gospel, to preach Christ out of his lost and dying world. May you bless as we close. May we remember these great truths in Jesus' name. Amen.